There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For us to feel happy, it's important that we have control. And typically that results in us wanting to control the external environment, other people or outcomes. But really there's a whole universe of domain of control that's internal to us. And if we kind of just shift the domain in which we seek control to regulate our own feelings and gain the ability to have internal control, then we don't need to rely on having external control as much in order to feel good. And when you do that, a lot of problems dissolve. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I have the brilliant best-selling author of If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? This book is a really juicy one and brings up a lot of food for thought I think will resonate with you greatly. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Raj Ragunathan today. Raj earned his PhD from the Stern School of Business at New York University and is currently employed as a professor of marketing at the McCombs School of Business, the University of Texas at Austin. Raj's work juxtaposes theories from psychology, behavioral science, decision theory, and marketing to document and explain interrelationships. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. What is the favorite quote you return to often and why? I actually have many favorite quotes, but the one that comes to mind right now is one by Dr. Seuss, of all people. And the quote is, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. And the reason why I like it is because it's got a playful lilt to it. Uh, It's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. And it is true. It turns out that everybody likes to be happy. Everybody likes to have positive experiences and experience positive emotions and be happy. But it's not as simple as wanting to be happy that you end up achieving the goal. You actually have to be somewhat deliberative about it. And it does make sense to know the science behind what makes us happy and what doesn't and do the things that make us happy more regularly and avoid the things that make us unhappy. And so, you know, because it also has this scientific backing to it, that is that even if you are very clear that you want to have fun, it's not as simple as just going and picking it off a shelf. You really have to be conscious and deliberative about it, uh, which is what the science tells us, um, makes it one of my favorite quotes. This is why I resonated with your work so much, because you're one of the few authors that really help communicate this message that happiness is far more of a conscious decision than something that just naturally falls in our lap because we're human and as a consequence we shouldn't be disappointed if we're 
not happy because it's something that actually really requires quite considered and discerning action. Absolutely. Yeah. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? A couple of days ago, I was listening to a podcast by Andrew Huberman, who is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, and the podcast was about meditation. And meditation is a critical determinant of happiness. It's one of the um, perhaps strongest predictors of um, being uh, content with your life and focusing on the things that are going well in your life rather than ruminating on the things that are not going well on your li- in your life and so on. And so it's a strong pillar of happiness. And I have been a off and on, more on than off, thankfully, meditator for about now, I would say, 10 years. But still, it was good to listen to the podcast and to be reminded of uh, the research behind meditation and why it's such a powerful technique to be happy and also to be reminded of the different effects that meditation can have on us and depending on what kind of an effect we are looking for in a particular moment it makes sense to meditate differently so just as a very quick example it turns out that meditation generally tends to lower stress but not always Meditation also tends to increase our uh, ability to focus on things and shine our attention on the things that we want to pay attention to and away from the things that we do not want to pay attention to. But again, not always. And so there are different meditation techniques that help us relax and de-stress and different meditation techniques that help us gain focus. And just to be reminded of the science behind it and to realize that even though we use meditation and mindfulness as a kind of an umbrella term to refer to a set of practices, it really bifurcates and it's a little more differentiated and more complex than might appear at first blush was was a good thing to be reminded of. And just very quickly, it turns out that if you want to relax, often it's better to focus on what's called exteroception. That is that focusing on things outside of you, like the sights and sounds on the road or the birds chirping or listening to music or ocean waves that you might have put on on your you know, sound player or Spotify. And if you want to gain focus, it's often better to focus on interior landscape, you know, the sensations that you might be experiencing inside your body and so on. And so just good to be reminded of that. Sometimes I do think, though, that meditation has been promised as this penicillin for all mental ills. And to what you've just said, it has a number of different benefits, but it's quite helpful to understand the benefit that you want in particular rather than thinking that meditation can solve everything. So for you, why do you meditate? What is the main purpose that meditation brings you? For me, meditation is very attractive because ultimately it gives you freedom. If you think about your attention span and your mind as being something that tends to focus that attention span on something or the other, we are genetically programmed to focus on things that are relevant to our survival. So for example, if you're feeling hungry, your mind might automatically focus on sources of food at restaurants and so on and so forth. If you're feeling lonely, you might want to focus on social connection. And that's something that's been programmed into us. And so oftentimes our mind's attention is focused on things that are programmed by our genes. And other times it might be paying attention to things that are programmed into us by society. So, you know, the desire to get to know somebody who's rich and famous, for example, or be famous and become wealthy. Uh, So we might focus on things that lead us to those goals. And those are, again, not things that we necessarily chose for ourselves, but society and 
other people around us might have told us that these are important goals to achieve. And so when you meditate and when you practice mindfulness, what is happening is you're resting control of your mind. And therefore, you then can choose the things to which you want to pay attention and not uh, choose to pay attention to things that you've been programmed to pay attention to. And in that process, you gain a tremendous amount of freedom and autonomy over your mind. So in a sense, you gain the ability to regulate your mind and therefore you gain the ability to make it your friend. So just as a very quick example, imagine that you are in a new city, unfamiliar city, and the next morning you have to wake up and make this really, really important presentation and your career success might depend on how well that presentation goes. If your mind ruminates and thinks about all the ways in which the presentation can bomb or go wrong, etc., that's not a good state to be in because that's going to evoke anxiety. You're not going to be able to sleep well. So if you have control over your mind and your mind is your friend, then you can choose to pay attention to things that pacify you, that calm you, and therefore enable you to fall asleep quicker and have a more sound sleep and wake up feeling fresh and energized and enthusiastic. And so there's just like so many different arenas in your life in which you can use the power that mindfulness gives to gain control over your mind to help you achieve your goals. And so to me, that is the biggest benefit out of uh, mindfulness. Now, I always ask people a couple of variations of my last question, but one of them is, how do you define happiness? And I feel your book addresses this question in its entirety. So I think I might move on to what is the happiness paradox that you address? Mm -hmm. Because I think that would then help maybe people understand the, the different definition that you have of happiness compared to others. Sure. The thing that I call the fundamental happiness paradox is this um, phenomenon where people are very clear in their mind that what they want ultimately out of life, why they do everything that they do, is so that they can lead a happier, more fulfilling, more meaningful life, right? So in abstract, people are very clear about it. There's no ambiguity about it that they want happiness and fulfillment and meaning and everything they do is so that they can achieve that. But if you then follow them around and look at all the decisions that they make, a vast proportion of those decisions people end up actually sacrificing happiness for other things. They might sacrifice happiness for being right, for example, in an argument, winning an argument, or they might sacrifice happiness for the sake of money or for fame or for power or for status. There's just any number of things for which people routinely sacrifice happiness, even though they claim that happiness is the uh, number one goal or number one priority for them. And so that's what I call a fundamental happiness paradox. In a nutshell, there is a gap between people's intentions which is to maximize happiness and their actions, which often sacrifice happiness for the very things that they say come below happiness in terms of priority. I thought you illustrated the happiness paradox really well through your genie question that you ask people. Would you mind talking us through why the genie question is so revealing about people's desires? Sure. Yeah. So the genie question goes like this. Imagine that a genie appears in front of you and grants you three wishes and assume that the genie is all powerful, all knowing. So any wish that you ask for is going to be granted to you. What three wishes would you make? And I've asked this question of now more than 25,000 people from around the world. And a striking pattern that emerges uh, universally, really, around the world, across countries, across religions, across cultures, 
is that happiness seems to be missing from most people's lists. Uh, very, very few people ask for happiness. And as I've just mentioned, happiness is a very, very important goal. But why is it missing from people's wish list? If it's so important, then why not ask for happiness directly? Now, it turns out that people actually forget to ask for happiness. So they ask for things like wealth, they ask for great relationships, they ask for all the accoutrements of success, you know, power, etc. But they forget to ask for happiness, even though those things, money, relationships, power, etc., people ask for them because they think that they make them happy. And how do I know that people forget about happiness in the genie question? I know this because after asking them the genie question, if I just slip in a very simple, gentle reminder to them that, look, you can ask the genie for anything and everything, including happiness, guess what? The proportion of people who ask for happiness shoots up, okay? So this suggests to me that even though happiness is really important to people, as people are going about their daily lives, they tend to forget all about happiness. And so they get distracted by these other goals that are actually meant to be subservient to the goal of happiness, but somehow are given higher priority as people are going about their lives. And when I was reading about this, I did the exercise myself. And before I realized that happiness actually wasn't on the list, I created an entirely different list. And <laughs> it's interesting that this is just so universal. But one exploration I found really interesting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is this human desire for superiority. And often people will ask the genie for, as you just said, power, money, which in many ways are mechanisms to feel a bit more superior. Why is this so common? And do you feel this is within all humans? Or do you think this is humans who are more on the narcissistic scale are, you know, more vulnerable to needing superiority? Or is it a sign of great insecurity? What is your thought in the connection between the desire for superiority and happiness? Yeah, so it's very tempting for people to conclude that the desire for superiority is something that only the particularly narcissistic people among us have, or that this is a shallow desire or, or you know, very egotistical desire and so on. I don't agree with that perspective. I do think that there is a justifiable reason for people to desire being superior to other people. Uh, it turns out that if you're superior, quote unquote superior, that is that you're wealthier or more powerful or stronger or higher in status or even like prettier, etc. those confer some advantages to you. So there are these famous set of studies called the Whitehall studies conducted in the United Kingdom actually, which showed that people who are higher up in an organization tend to suffer lower levels of psychological stress and end up actually living longer. And there are some um, studies done by uh, Robert Sapolsky uh, with baboons. And this is not just with human beings, it turns out that in any kind of species that tends to be social and hierarchical, which human beings are, it is better to be superior than to be inferior. Now, having said that, it turns out that this advantage that being superior confers upon you in terms of stress levels and longevity and all that is only true in societies that value superiority. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing and actually interesting to me. So in other words, if you think of two societies, one which is like a pyramid structure in terms of the structure of the society, there's one person at the very top, like a, you can imagine a kingdom, a king, and then people below him or her and, and or queen and so on. And another society in which it's flat and everybody's kind of more or less equal. 
And really depending on the task that a group of people want to achieve, somebody is elevated to be in the position of leadership because they are particularly skilled at that task. But when it comes to another task, somebody else is elevated. So it's a more equal society. Now, it turns out that all these advantages that I talked about of being superior really only apply to the former context where everything is kind of a hierarchical, pyramidical structure. But when it gets to be a flat culture, uh, in that context, it turns out that being superior doesn't really confer any advantages to you. So back to your question, who's most likely to seek superiority? I think it's not got so much to do with individual characteristics. It's got more to do with the culture to which that person belongs. So if you pick a person from a hierarchical society, which in general, I don't think that it would be erroneous to equate a hierarchical society to a more capitalistic society, then being superior is something that people are going to seek a lot. You know, that's the message that they get from society, that being superior confers all these advantages to you. But if you go to a more flat society, and again, here at the risk of, you know, generalizing, I think that it would be fair to say that a more socialistic society would be more a flat society there being superior doesn't really confer a lot of advantages to you and therefore people don't really seek it as much and then how does that relate to happiness i mean is this then a direct link between let's say more socialistic countries for example is this how you understand the reason why they may have higher rates of happiness so the many reasons why i think in socialistic setups people are happier i don't know if this the fact that being superior doesn't really confer a lot of advantages to you is a reason for it. It could be, and it would be a you know interesting hypothesis to test, but there are certainly other contributing factors to why those societies tend to be happier. And I think the most kind of plausible hypothesis is that obviously you're likely to be less unhappy if all your basic needs are met or most of your basic needs are met. And in those kinds of setups, in those kinds of countries, most people's basic needs, meaning food, clothing, shelter, uh, mode of transportation, medical attention, access to education, etc., are fulfilled. And so there's a lot of people who are not unhappy in those countries compared to countries like perhaps the United States, where uh, there's lots of people who, for whom the access to basic needs is not a given. And so they're probably scoring themselves at three, four, five out of 10 on happiness. And there's very few people are scoring themselves that low in those Scandinavian countries. And I think that that's a big reason for why those countries tend to be happier. This leads me into asking you, if you wouldn't mind, to share the fisherman story. (laughs) I've heard it before, but I love it so much. And I was, when I found it in your book, I just thought, great, this is an opportunity to have Mm -hmm. someone share it on the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to have to kind of like paraphrase the story, but the story goes something like this. There is this guy who goes to visit this uh, fishing village in Mexico. He's an American guy who works in Wall Street. And he's hanging out and then he sees this fisherman next to him who's really happy and he's got a nice easy smile next to him and he starts talking to him. And he discovers that this fisherman is actually a pretty smart guy and he's able to kind of talk about things very intelligently and so on. This guy, this American guy, he eventually kind of decides that this guy might be a very good guy to have working in some Wall Street firm. And so he turns around to him and he says, have you ever considered moving out of Mexico and perhaps kind of like working for a you know really successful organization that's going to pay you a lot, like an organization on the Wall Street? Because I think that you would really be very successful there. And the guy, fisherman, turns around to the guy and says, why would I do that? And the guy says, so that you can earn a lot of money. And then he says, why would I want a lot of money? He says, so that you can then do anything you want in life. And the guy says, like what? Then he says that, well, you know, you could kind of like, 
basically make so much money that it doesn't really matter to you anymore to do anything else in your life. You can just happily hang out, for instance, in this very fishing village, come back here and lead a retired life that's very relaxed. And every day in the morning to evening, all you can do is just fish and without a worry on your head. And the guy says, but I'm already there. <laughs> and so why do I have to go through this, you know, jumping through all these hoops and joining a Wall Street firm and making money and get stressed out and perhaps even kind of like change my personality into becoming a more narcissistic, self-centered person who um, is making money at the cost of other people's happiness and welfare, uh, only to come back to do what I'm already doing. So uh, the reason why I like the story a lot is because I think it really in a very simple story form, illustrates that there is a difference between what might be called end goals and what might be called means goals. And end goals are things that we ultimately want out of our life. You know, this is like leading a happy life and being chill and being with, you know, your best friends and doing the things that you want to do that get you into these so-called flow states and so on and so forth. Those are end goals. Means goals are things like making money and, you know, getting a degree and getting college educated and so on and so forth so that you have a higher chance of achieving those end goals. And sometimes we get so distracted by those means goals that we confuse them uh, for the end goals, right? Like this American guy in the story was doing, that he was so enamored uh, by these means goals of making money and working for Wall Street and showing your smarts and being successful that he forgot that the end goal is to chill and, and have a good life, which anyway, the Mexican guy was having, right? And so if you have clarity on your end goals and you already have it, then you can forget about the means goals is the idea. This brought up the sometimes maybe contradiction and conflict between short-term happiness and long-term happiness. And often this can come up in relationships. For example, someone being single and having a lot of short-term, high excitement, zero commitment, being able to be super selfish in everything they decide to do, that can be a conflict to the opposite, which is being incredibly loyal, building up a relationship that can be difficult at times. And so what is your advice there? At what point should we be sacrificing short-term hedonistic happiness for long-term happiness? And what's more important? In general, I think that people commit the fundamental happiness paradox, as we have discussed before, which involves sacrifice of current levels of happiness. And in some of those cases, people could argue that I'm, the reason I'm sacrificing my current levels of happiness is so that I have a better future. And I do think that there is some validity to examining this question at a deeper level. You know, I'm not saying that every time you get an opportunity to maximize your current happiness, you should take it, even if it comes at a sacrifice to your future happiness. If you're in a situation in which you have this trade-off, you know, you can maximize current happiness or future happiness, the way that I would look at it is to ask myself this question, is the sacrifice of the current happiness coming at a advantage to future happiness that is based off of extrinsic things? So in other words, if I'm struggling through preparing a lecture right now or, you know, preparing for a talk right now or learning something right now so that I can become richer, more famous, more powerful, higher status, and so on and so forth, then in general, I would not want to sacrifice my current level of happiness. But to your point, and the question that you asked, if uh, the sacrifice of current happiness is going to make me a better human being to other people, better in my relationships, better with my family or my friendships, 
then I do think that it's worth it to sacrifice my current levels of happiness. So for example, if I am feeling really tired and my family wants me to go out on a walk with them, then, you know, I'm sacrificing my current levels of happiness. I'd rather stay back at home and chill, you know, so going out uh, takes some energy out of me. It's not what it is that I would like to do from current happiness perspective, but because it is an investment in the relationship, it makes it better for me and my family to bond. When you go out on a walk, I would do that. And there's also another kind of a context in which I'd be willing to sacrifice my current happiness. And that context is when the sacrifice of the current happiness is going to enhance my skills, enhance my competence levels, enhance my abilities so that I can more easily get into what might be called high flow states, states in which I completely lose track of time, where I get so involved in my work that it is intrinsically motivating for me to do that work, right? So you can imagine a scenario where I pull all-nighters in order to prepare for a presentation or a TED Talk, because I know that in the future, when I give that TED Talk, if I'm able to get into flow states, it's not for the fame, it's not for the money that that TED Talk is going to give me, but rather it is for becoming a more skilled person in the future. So these two goals, right? becoming a better human being to other people and becoming more skilled. If those are the two long-term goals for which I'm sacrificing current levels of happiness, that's not a bad thing. But I do not want to sacrifice my current level of happiness for the sake of extrinsic rewards like fame, money, power, etc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What I really wanted to ask you about is the feeling of abundance and also scarcity mindset. Obviously, having an abundant belief system is really important to creating a happy life in the present and in the future. But what is your advice to people in creating one? Because I think at this moment in time, especially, we can turn on the news and there is so much fear and threat and worry, and it goes against trying to stay abundant that things are gonna be okay. Yeah, so let me just kind of start out by saying that one of the most critical determinants of happiness is the kind of mindset that you have, the attitude that you have, because the narratives that you build up as to what your life is like or, you know, who you are, etc., for obvious reasons, is going to have a huge impact on your emotional well-being. And so, in a way, this idea that happiness is an inside job more than an outside job is the starting point for recognizing that your mindset is a huge contributor to your happiness or for that matter, a detractor from your happiness. And in particular, this uh, I use the word abundance mindset to refer to the kind of mindset that is particularly conducive for enhancing your emotional well-being. And I contrast that with a scarcity mindset. And a person with an abundance mindset feels that they're 
well taken care of by the universe. They have more or less everything that they need and that other people are not enemies. Life is not a zero-sum game. They don't have to be hyper-vigilant of other people or untrusting of other people and so on and so forth. Compared to a scarcity-minded person who believes that life is a zero-sum game and for them to win, somebody else has to lose and so on. For obvious reasons, everybody can kind of instinctively relate to this, I think. An abundance mind mindset is much better for your happiness than is a scarcity mindset. But a lot of people might be worried that the abundance mindset might actually come at a cost to actual success in life. If I'm abundance oriented, then other people might take advantage of me, steamroll over me and, you know, not really give me what's due to me or be fair to me and so on and so forth. But in fact, what a lot of fascinating research shows is that people who are abundance oriented tend to actually also enjoy more success because Again, here, I think that instinctively people can understand this point that when you're abundance oriented, you're more of a giver, you tend to be easy to get along with, other people like you more, etc. And in this particularly hyper-connected world with, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and all that, word spreads around and people like you, they are likely to promote you and therefore your chances of success do increase. But your question was, how do we nurture an abundance mindset? And I have like three tips that I want to give to people if they're interested in nurturing an abundance mindset. One of those is to avoid the news. Okay, you just talked a little bit about this. There's so much negativity in the news. There's a saying in the media business, right? If it bleeds, it leads, meaning that if there's mm -hmm. blood and gore, it tends to be a lead story. And so news tends to be negative. And so if you avoid the news, then chances are you're going to come out having a more positive outlook on the world and more positive views on other people and their intentions and so on than would be the case if you followed the news closely and regularly. The second, I think the most powerful practice perhaps is uh, what is called the three good things journal. So basically it is an activity that you have to do consistently every day, really, where you write about three good things that happened to you. And the time that I pick to write this is in the evening when the day is already unfolded. I'm about to retire for the evening. And the three good things that I pick to write about are non-egotistical good things. So these are things that you did not necessarily work toward, but they were handed to you anyway. So these are things that you're grateful toward, as opposed to things that make you proud, right? Which are things that you work toward. So it's important to focus on non-egotistical good things and things that you're grateful for, because what you want to walk away at the end of the day, every day, is that the universe is actually benign, that there are good things happening all around you. Granted, there are bad things that are happening too, but there's also good things happening. And this is important because as a lot of psychologists have shown, we tend to suffer from something called negativity bias. That is that we tend to focus more on negative things that are happening in our life. And if two things that are equal in terms of magnitude, one of them is positive, the other is negative, we tend to suffer deeper psychological scars from the negative events than we tend to kind of benefit from the positive events psychologically. And so noting things that you did not work for, but nevertheless were handed to you is a good way in which you can mitigate the negativity bias. So you become less negative in your outlook. And so that's the aim. And when you get to that point where you're no longer suffering as much from negativity bias, that is fertile ground for gaining a sense of abundance. So that's the second practice. And the third thing, very, very powerful, is to hang around with people who are abundance-oriented. We are highly, highly, highly social as a species, as we all know. And there is such a thing as goal contagion. There's emotional contagion. And so other people's emotions rub off onto us, right? So there are some people who have this positive energy about them who tend to be abundance-oriented. Perhaps they work towards it or they're naturally like that. And just hanging out with people like that 
tends to also nurture a sense of abundance in us. And here, I would say that, you know, if you can actually kind of look at the people who in your own family and friend circle who have lived a psychologically rich life, who are typically they tend to be older people, they tend to be abundance oriented because they're at a point now where they are like, you know what, I ran around like a headless chicken in a rat race and I've done so many things. Now I'm like, you know, in the winter years of my life and I'm looking back and I'm wondering, you know, did I just kind of squander a lot of these beautiful moments in the quest for something that was uh, egotistical, right? And now that I'm here, I feel like I'm reconciled with everything that happened in my life and I'm at peace and I just want to enjoy what's left of my life. And they tend to adopt a more abundance-oriented uh, mindset at that point in their life. And so just hanging out with the grandmothers and the grandfathers and people who have retired, often, um, not all of them, but often it tends to instill an abundance orientation in you. I love that reminder of just how important it is to spend time with people who have a mindset that is going to be helpful for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This brings me on to our need for control and how that relates to happiness. Because it's often, again, this complete contradiction. Like we think that the more we control our life, the happier we're going to be. And actually that often is the complete opposite. So would love to hear your thoughts and reflections on this dynamic between control and happiness. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of research showing that having some level of control over your life is super important for you to be happy. There's research on human beings, there's research on rats uh, that uh, showcase this. And so it's not a big surprise that we desire control. We want to have life on our terms. We want other people to behave like we think that they ought to behave. We want outcomes that we think are desirable to be handed to us. And when they are, then we are happy. And when they're not, then we're miserable and so on and so forth. But it turns out that this desire for control is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, of course, it's completely understandable that people want it. But on the other hand, it can lead to a lot of negative outcomes, particularly when we seek control over other people. People don't like to be controlled. Just as we have a desire for things to work out like we want them to and not be controlled by other people, other people have the same desire. And so it evokes something called psychological reactance in other people. And in one way or the other, what psychological reactance is, is a kind of uh, attempt at revolting against being controlled. And now if the people that we try to control are kind of lower in power than us, then it's probably going to be psychological reactance that's exhibited in a passive aggressive fashion, right? They kind of like do things to irk us on the uh, sides a little bit. But if they're actually equally powerful or more powerful, then they might even react violently to it. So it's not a very good recipe for being happy. Plus, it also turns out that life by nature is very uncertain. And so if you tether your happiness to things working out exactly like you want them to, you're probably setting yourself up more for misery than for happiness. And then the question is, what can we do if being in control is important, but seeking control leads to psychological reactance and life is not controllable and therefore you're going to be unhappy if you desire control, what can you do? Well, there is a really kind of interesting answer to that puzzle. And the answer is to seek what I call internal control. And internal control is really control over our own mind, control over our own feelings, control over our own attitudes and behaviors. And when we have the power to control our own minds and feelings, and actually maybe even the word control is a bit of a misnomer here. It's more like mm. the ability to regulate our feelings, to coax mm. our mind to think the kinds of thoughts that we wanted to think, to come up with narratives that are more productive than counterproductive. When we have that ability of what I call internal control, then we don't need as much external control, it turns out. 
and actually makes sense when you kind of like think through it. The reason we seek external control, control over other people or over outcomes is because something inside of us is unbalanced. We are feeling stressed out. We are feeling the sense of unease or discomfort. And in order to make ourselves feel good, we seek control over other people so that we feel uh, reassured that life is working out like we want it to. And therefore, things are not as bad as they seem as they might if you only focused on how you're feeling inside of you. So it's when we are not feeling good is that we are particularly likely to seek external control, control over other people and outcomes. But if you have internal control, then you have the ability to regulate your feelings inside of you. And so you have the ability to kind of correct for that discomfort or correct for that imbalance inside of you. You have that ability. And when you have that, you don't need that external control as much. It's not to say that if you have this internal control ability, you won't want to persuade other people or you won't have you know, goals and visions for your team or be a good leader, etc. In fact, if anything, you're going to be a much better leader because other people can sense when you're coming at control from a sense of desperation and for making yourself feel good and people are more likely to react negatively to that attempt. But if they know that you're coming from a place of equanimity where they suggest things to you to do, and if you don't do it, it doesn't really bother them that much, it doesn't shake them up, then actually you're more likely to be persuaded by them. You're more likely to consider them to be real leaders that are inspirational and worthy of following. So for us to feel happy, it's important that we have control. And typically that results in us wanting to control the external environment, other people or outcomes. But really there's a whole universe of domain of control that's internal to us. And if we kind of just shift the domain in which we seek control to regulate our own feelings and gain the ability to have internal control, then we don't need to rely on having external control as much in order to feel good. And that then solves the problem of control that you know we don't abdicate our control to the external environment and to the cooperation of the external environment, we retain the keys to our happiness in our own two hands because we have internal control. And when you do that, a lot of problems dissolve. Other people like you better. You're actually more likely to be a better leader. You obviously have the keys to your happiness in your own two hands more. So you're more likely to be emotionally more positive and equanimous and so on and so forth. I think that you are right. Like the word control can be confusing because... I totally agree. Having greater control over our internal lives allows us to respond to situations in the way that's going to help our future self rather than being super reactive. But at the same time, I think people can take this to the extreme and think, okay, well, I need to control and suppress everything I'm feeling. And as we know, that can lead to greater discontentment and unhappiness because we're in denial about what we're going through. So how do you navigate this balance between being control of our internal lives at the same time as being in acceptance of them? And what are the tools to do that? <laughs> Let me start out with this um, question of, you know, how do you gain the ability to control your emotions and your feelings? How do you gain this internal control? So the two broad categories of strategies here. One is what might be called emotion regulation strategies. So things like situation selection, that is that knowing what kinds of things evoke counterproductive, negative, self-defeating emotions in you and things that evoke the opposite, productive, positive, self-enhancing and optimistic, resilient emotions in you. And believe it or not, 
most people don't have a list of things that evoke negative versus positive emotions and don't have a strategy for how to minimize time spent with those negative and maximize time spent on the positive activity. So it's just something as simple as that, which is more of a prevention tactic if you think about it, right? Even before a negative emotion has been evoked in you, you're already gravitating towards doing things that are evoking positive emotions in you. Very simple example might be going out on a walk with your dog every day really pacifies you and makes you feel really good. That's a very good way to start the morning. Or the three good things journaling that I talked about, right? If it makes you feel good, then do those things more regularly. And if hanging out with a toxic colleague um, makes you feel really pessimistic and saps you off all the energy, then figure out ways in which you can minimize doing that, right? Just being conscious about those things. That's called situation selection. So that's one broad set of strategies that you can use in order to gain internal control. The other broad strategy is the set of mindfulness techniques. And here's the paradox, right? Or the interesting kind of contradiction almost. In emotion regulation strategies, you're actually trying to change an emotion or come up with a different narrative to regulate your emotions and so on. In mindfulness, you're actually walking into the emotion. You're not trying to change anything at all. Your attempt is to connect to what's actually going on without changing anything without being delusional, etc. So in a way, they're the opposite, right? One is to actually come up with a different narrative in order to make yourself feel good. The other is to not do any, any of that, just to walk into the emotion um, is what mindfulness is. And it turns out that both of them end, you end up at the same spot. That is that you end up feeling less stressed out. Of course, uh, there's a qualifier to mindfulness. As we discussed earlier, exteroception mindfulness is better for calming down. Interoception is better for focus, right? But in general, mindfulness ends up uh, being a very, very good way in which you can calm yourself down. Now, the important thing here, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, is that in the attempt to gain internal control, one of the things that people could be tempted into doing is what is called emotion suppression. Emotion suppression is not a good strategy at all. Okay, Emotion suppression doesn't really lead you to not experience the emotion. Perhaps it might kind of in the short run help you but uh, it actually ends up backfiring and intensifying the negative emotions. So emotion suppression is where you pretend as if you're not angry or you pretend as if you're not anxious or you're not in touch with the physiological responses that your body is evoking in response to a, a triggering event, right? So that's emotion suppression. You're pretending as if things are good when in fact things are not going well. That's not good at all. This brings me to a quote that I read right at the beginning of your book, and I would love to discuss that with you. And the quote went something like, if you can dream but not make dreams your master, and it was in relation to achieving greater happiness. But I just thought that was so interesting because obviously dreaming and visualizing what we want is key to us living these super fulfilling lives and raising self-awareness. But that second line, but not make dreams your master, I thought really stood out to me. What's your reflection on that? Yeah. So in the literature on goals, there are some very interesting themes that emerge um, with regard to happiness. So one thing that emerges as a very, very important theme is that it is very important to have goals. I think it's important to emphasize this finding because uh, sometimes we end up concluding that, well, you know, if I want to be happy, then I should have no desires. Uh, because desires kill our happiness. And that's not true at all. I think it's very important to have desires, very important to have goals, and very important to kind of pursue those goals with a lot of enthusiasm and vim and vigor and everything. And that's one thing that emerges. Now, 
By the same token, it turns out that if you become obsessive in your pursuit of your goals, whereby that is given such a high priority, the achievement of the goals, that everything else in your life, including your health, your um, relationships, all of those take a backseat, then that's not very good either. Not just for your happiness, it also turns out it's not good for achieving the goals, right? So there's some wonderful research on this, and there's a very interesting book called Peak by Anders Ericsson, who looked at these kind of experts in various domains, and he looked at the lifestyles that they had. And what he found was that, uh, yeah, you know, people who end up becoming masters of their domain, like, for example, at the Berlin Philharmonic, the master violinists, they did practice a lot, right? But they don't necessarily practice much more or any more than the people who end up not achieving as much, right? And when he looked at the difference between their uh, lifestyles, it turned out that some of these people who end up ended up not becoming really, really good, they were very good, obviously, because they also were part of the Philharmonic, but not as good as the masters, ended up becoming too obsessive about achieving their goals. So they would like sacrifice sleep, they would sacrifice their relationships, become almost single-minded in according priority to this goal, whereby everything else in their life takes a bad seat. And so they became obese or, you know, had divorces and so on and so forth. And so uh, the idea here is to have your dreams, have your aspirations, have clarity on what it is that you want to achieve but you are in control of your dreams and the dreams are not in control of you, meaning that you don't sacrifice your happiness, your health, your relationships in the pursuit of those goals. Another way to put this that, you know, this is one of my favorite sayings too, and this kind of gets to the definition of happiness a little bit. If you can do, quote unquote, serious things, by that I mean important things, things that you value, if you can do serious things, but not take yourself too seriously. So if you can manage that, I think that that's a huge piece of the jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> and so that's what that, that line from the uh, one of my favorite poems, obviously, if by Rudyard Kipling is referring to in the, in the quote that he gave me. Thank you so much. I really appreciated that answer. And you've just given us so much to chew on and reflect upon. And brilliant to know that everyone can find all of the juicy stuff that you shared and in much more detail in your brilliant book. Where is the best place for people to find you and learn further? I know that you have got lots of different things happening online. So would love to hear about that. Sure. Um, there is a website that I have, actually two websites. One is called happysmarts.com. It's a kind of one-stop shop of uh, for all the different initiatives that I have, including my book and the two online courses and some blog articles that I've written for psychology today. The other thing to do is uh, you can just email me. You know, uh, you can Google my name and um, Google will get you to my webpage on my uh, university account and you can find my email there and email me. And I generally tend to respond to everybody, even if I sometimes take a little bit of time. So those would be the two. So grateful for your work. Thank you so much for sharing the past hour with us. And, and I really look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Likewise, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific 
specific guest coming up in future episodes, just let me know. Shoot me a message on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at Poppy Jamie. And so until next time, stay flexible, stay true to you and stay leaning into love. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.